You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to call in the spirits to join us here today um, for our gathering. So I'd like to call out to the ancestors. I'd like to call out to all of those who are good and true and beautiful, who lived well, who died well, and who walked on the earth in a way that was in balance or in harmony with all living things. I call out especially to those ancestors, mine and all those who would listen to this show at any time. I call out to those ancestors who faced and met met well the challenge of balance and how to truly live their lives in a way that was full and creative and expressed with a great big heart, who truly lived their lives and met the challenges of survival of their time, but who met this challenge of balance in all of those things. And so we call out to those ancestors to join us here today. I call out to that great ancestor, the earth, that being moving through space. We call out to her and ask her to be with us here today to rise up from all the deep layers below and to help us to remember to reach down to her to be grounded, to be in our bodies, to be present in our lives, and to be on this earth in this day and to give thanks. To give thanks for the miracle of life and the fact that in each day we are a piece of that miracle. And may we call on the energy of the earth to gain the wisdom of manifestation, how to be here in form and manifest that miracle in our actions in this day. We give thanks to the earth for connection and interconnection and belonging and for a place that we call home. And we give thanks to the earth for the magnificent beauty and diversity of the natural places. And we give thanks for the way in which our presence in those natural places allows our heart and our mind and our body to return to its own true nature. So we call out to the earth today and give gratitude for beauty, for nature, and for all of those things around us that make our hearts sing. And from this place, grounded in the earth, surrounded by our ancestors, with our hearts singing, we reach up into the sky up through the weather, that whatever it is that you're experiencing, and out into the cosmos, and all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever name you call this energy, call this sun energy down, this sky energy down, into yourself, into our circle, into your day. We call out for protection that we might become vulnerable enough in the safety of that protection to hear what we need to hear and to speak what needs to be spoken. We call out for blessings on ourselves and on our proceedings here today that we might live in a way that gives blessing. And we call out to the generosity and benevolence of this universe to be with us in this day. 
And may we live as an expression of those energies. So with the sky coming down into our bodies and into our day and the earth rising up and merging within us, the ancestors circled round, we call out to the energy of the heart. That amazing crucible of life that can take in the fiery passions of our bellies and the strong emotions and merge them with the clarity and inspiration and creativity of the mind and bring these energies together in a way that they stay true to their essence and yet become that third energy, that knowing in our heart of why we are here and the courage to live in a way in this day that we do that. So with these energies gathered round, I give thanks. May our proceedings here today help us all to live in good relationship with all things. And may we hear what needs to be heard and may what needs to be spoken be spoken. I want to give thanks to those people that make this show possible, which is you. I want to give thanks to the listeners that donate and support the show, that the show can remain out and open and available and free. Um, to those who, of course, have access to a computer, which doesn't necessarily mean it's completely free, but as close as we can get at this time. So I want to give special thanks to Nancy and Carlene for their generous donations over the last week and all, all other listeners that have donated recently. If this show is meaningful to you in any way, um, I ask for you to allow the meaning, the movement in the heart to move you into action in your life, be that acting uh, with others, um, donating to the show, sharing the show with others, or allowing the wisdom to infuse your own practice in some way. Um, I just ask you to begin to do what is at the heart and at the essence of all shamanism, which is to let what motivates your heart move you into action. So I give thanks to those of you who have done that and are doing that. And um, for those of you that are curious how to support the show, you can go to whyshamanismnow.com to the show website, and there's a support button there, and you can donate any amount you choose to, large or small, every single increment, whatever currency you pay in, every single increment helps us to keep the show on the air, and we are deeply, deeply grateful for it. So our guest today is Annie Spencer, and we had a great connection with her about 10 minutes ago, and for some reason right now we're having a little bit of trouble. So what I'm going to do is go through the introduction of um, Annie, to those of you who might not know, because she is in the UK, and um, give us a little bit of time here to coordinate whatever's going on um, technically. So, again, our guest today, today is Annie Spencer, and she has been in the work for at least 30 years. And so we have a great um, debt of gratitude to offer her as an elder in the shamanic community, that Annie is primarily a ceremonialist. And um, and she is, uh, I met her at the UK Shamanic Conference last September. Um, she currently lives in Bath, and... Um, this is the home, for those of you in the States who don't know, of the greatest hot spring in England. And it is where the goddess has been honored for thousands of years. So she lives and has been raised on very potent land. Annie is the founder of the Hartwell Center for Shamanic and Ceremonial Ways. And the aim of Hartwell, H-A-R-T-W-E-L-L, -L, um, is to help participants to heal 
to regain their balance and to find true purpose that puts them in harmony with all our relations, the stone, the plant, the animal beings with whom we share this planet. This is from their website. At Hartwell, they say that we work to integrate ancient shamanic healing and ceremonial ways with the best of our Western ways. Hartwell offers individual ceremonies, group processes, and vision questing, as well as um, you know, basic life ceremonies like marriages and hand fastings and baby naming. Um, and so if you would like to go to the Hartwell site, um, it is www.hartwell, H-A-R-T-W-E-L-L, dot E-U, as in Europe, dot com. So www.hartwell.eu.com. And you uh, can also connect with Annie uh, by emailing info at hartwell.eu.com. So this interview is part of our Society of Shamanic Practitioners series, and we thank the SSP for their sponsorship. Um, In these monthly shows, we are exploring how contemporary practitioners are practicing. And if you want to connect with the SSP, you can go to shamansociety.org. And as you know, this show is live. You are welcome to call in at 512-772-1938, or you can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, Um, from which we are broadcasting happily today. And you're welcome to get a question on the show by just emailing me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. So I think I've tap danced here long enough, and I believe I hear Annie there. Are you there, Annie? Hello? There you are. Hello, Annie. Oh, I've been hearing you, but you haven't been hearing me. Well, I can hear you now. Isn't that fabulous? We're talking across half the world. Isn't this exciting? (laughs) (laughs) It's excellent. I don't know what happened. So, Annie, thank you for joining us here today. Um, Are you there at your home in Bath? Sorry? Are you at your home in Bath? I am at my home in Bath, yes. So, so describe it just a little bit. We, when we listened to Jonathan Horowitz, we all got to picture him in his little cabin in Sweden, covered in South Sweden, covered by snow and everything. And so just give us a little picture so we can picture you well as we're listening to you. Well, here I am in a small house with uh, honey stones on the edge of this beautiful city, which is sacred to the goddess Sol, the goddess of the gateway, the opening to the underworld, because, you know... It has the biggest hot spring in Britain. And I'm sitting at my kitchen table, which is the wooden table, which belonged to a friend of my grandmother's, looking at my grandmother's dresser full of old bits of china and cards and goodness knows what all. And I have a little stone to green in front of me uh, that a friend brought out of South America who goes with me everywhere. And um, she's sitting on a little cloth from Tibet. And I have a small piece of Daphne from my garden, which smells divine, sitting beside her. And some turtles. So here I am. That's where I am. Beautiful. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. you all, all scattered around in this beautiful heart. <laughs> it is a heart center of England, I think, Bath. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So, Annie, share with us just a bit. Um, you know, now that you have the the glorious wisdom of hindsight, if you look back along your life, um, what are the moments that were truly pivotal for you personally that, that moved you onto the path that unfolded that makes you who you are today? 
that the, those things that took you from, I don't know, some ordinary and disastrous path or something <laughs> to become, yeah, yes. you know. <laughs> well, you know. I suppose I would have to honor my mother's parents who lived on the land and gave me a great love of the land. My grandmother who said when she got older, you know, you may think me crazy, but what I like to do is go out and sit on a rock and just be with the land. And um, then when I was 14, I was confirmed in the Christian church, and I was very excited about it, but it was such a letdown. You know, the bishop put his hands on my head and absolutely nothing happened. But somewhere, always, I had a feeling about spirit. So that sort of started me on my journey when I realized that wouldn't do. And then really spirit, all the way along the line, has come to me. Um, I first started in my early 20s to meditate, and the reason I did that was because I had some friends who were going on about this guru, and I said, I don't want to be, you know, all the Beatles have got gurus, I don't want a guru, it's far too fashionable. And then one evening I was bored and had nothing to do, so I went round to this little basement flat in London and got this beautiful spiritual teaching. That was my first step for about 10 years. And then the next time I was in Cornwall, with a small daughter having split up from her father with no money, feeling very sorry for myself, although I lived in the most beautiful place on the edge of the cliffs, on the edge of the Atlantic. And my neighbor said, you must come on this training in humanistic psychology. Well, I didn't know what humanistic psychology was, but something made me say yes, even though I didn't have the money. So I went on it. And on the second year, they invited the president of the European Association of Humanistic Psychology, someone called Arnold Kaiserling, and he came in for two days. He gave teachings about Native American medicine wheels and how they relate to European grammar and Greek mathematics and the I Ching and astrology. It was truly extraordinary. He was in his 80s. He wore a berry and a cloak. And he talked and talked and talked, and we wrote and wrote and wrote. And then when we were sort of collapsing, he had this young girl with him who'd do a bit of Tai Chi with us, and then he'd talk again. And he said, you have beautiful stone circles here. I, I am apprenticed to a man called Jaime of Storm. He would love to see them. So within a few weeks, this Methodist man turned up. Uh, my mother gave co a cocktail party for him. <laughs> a friend of mine gave him a massage. And the rest of us went and listened to his teachings every afternoon for two weeks. And that was my beginning. And I thought, goodness me, there I am in the very, very southwest end of Cornwall, far away from anywhere. But somewhere these teachings have come and sought me out, and now I feel I've come home. And from then on, I followed them as best I could with a small child and followed them. And that was really my beginning. And again, I now work with the Guatemala Mayan teachings because I learned with someone called Martin Prechtel. I turned on the television one night thinking, I just need to watch something for 20 minutes before I go to sleep. I'm sure it's all rubbish. And there was this curly-haired man with a turquoise earring in his ear talking with a load of very academic English um, people about medicine and he kept on going on about my village and the way that we heal and I thought oh god why do I never meet someone like him and of course a week later I found a photograph of him before I knew it I'd met him so I find that these pivotal moments are given to me and I think we're going to talk about initiation a bit aren't we yes and again so. when I was working with Martine I was sitting doing something and overheard him just having a little conversation, you know, as you do at the end of a workshop with some people who are asking him questions. And I heard him say, I'm training some people 
to do initiation in America. And then they carried on and talked about something else. So I went up to him and said, I'd like to do that training. And he said, what training? And I said, the training in America. And he looked at me for a minute and then said, all right. And someone else came up and said, what are you talking about? And he changed the subject. And I was mm. just very, very lucky. Again, there was, you know, I think that sometimes a very small door of opportunity is opened. I'm sure many, many are, and I've missed many of them. But every so often when you notice them, you have to jump very quickly because they just they become a jar and you see this amazing vista through them. And then if you don't jump through, they close and you forget that you ever saw them. So I always feel that spirit comes after me and I feel very blessed for that because me and Thank my stumbling you. way would probably have got nowhere had I not been grabbed by my ear and dragged to where I needed to go. So does that answer your question? Well, absolutely. But also I, I really appreciate the the... Your message, though, about the doors opening and having to jump, I mean, because we do get dragged by the ear, but then there are those moments where we just have to fling ourselves through. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Or we don't have to, and then that moment goes and it may never come back again. Yeah, That's the thing with life, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there are other moments, but there's some really critical moments we just have to fling ourselves through and, you know, hope we land, you know, without too many bruises and see what happens. And yes, it does change everything, but it's what our heart's been calling for. So. It is what our heart's been calling for. And if you, if you notice, you may think, God, this is absurd, or I don't know what I'm doing, or what am I letting myself in for? But, you, but a bit of you says, and this is where we're going. And don't worry. Well, and, and perhaps if you go quick you enough, learn... you, you, you don't have time to worry. I think the thing is to go very quick. To yes. jump in very quick. It's rather like jumping off a cliff. And all you can do is shut your eyes and jump. Well, and maybe and that, that idea fly. that what am I doing and, and, you know, this doesn't make any sense should be the sign <laughs> that it's time to jump. <laughs> it probably should. We have to be like yeah. the fool in the tarot, don't we? I think so. Step off, I think step do, off I that cliff with the dog prancing beside us and everyone else going, what are you doing? What are you doing? This isn't safe. And you say, but life is never safe. Mm-hmm. Life is always wild and glorious and sometimes terrifying, but it's, once it's safe, you're half dead. That's what I think. Oh, absolutely. So let's not get half dead yet here and let's carry on. Um, that's something else I was thinking about, but I think we'll forge ahead. We might circle back around to it. Um, so let's talk here. You already brought up initiation and rites of passage. I think I think one of the things I'd like to just share with the listeners is that there are some, I think, unintended contemporary biases um, emerging in shamanism as we experience it in the kind of the Western world today. And And I think that it's important to understand that though the English language doesn't particularly use them this way, ritual and ceremony are each in and of themselves unique and powerful acts in the shamanic world. And what we're going to talk about today a lot is about the power of ceremony, primarily because Annie Spencer is, in my estimation, um, one one of the true ceremonialists of our time. Now, the problem is, of course, we're in a time where, in general, people don't know they're supposed to value that. <laughs> but nonetheless, Annie, <laughs> you know, it is a great gift that you offer. And, and I, we're going to talk about that today. But I also want to 
acknowledge that I think in in the moments of initiation or in those particular moments of rites of passage, I think that these are the moments in our lives, um, in our sacred lives, where ritual and ceremony come together to create initiation, to create that moment that changes everything. And um, because there is something, and I've tried to express this about a gajillion different ways and times on this show, that, that the moment of initiation is somehow qualitatively unique relative to all the other transformational moments we're going to have in our life. That it, 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 it conveys us in a certain way to a new land. Um, and without yeah. it, we'll still go through life and we'll still heal and grow and transform but it will be different that, that these are the, these rites of passage and our ability as contemporary people to learn to do them well again, I, I believe is critical. And I don't think I'm overstating it critical for the life of humanity. I think the rest of the earth will live just fine if we can't figure it out. But, you know, we're not going to if we don't figure it out again. <laughs> and I just want to let you know, Annie, that I'm having um, – um, Tom Pinkson come next week to speak about rights of recognition that he's doing with elders. And so these shows are, are, are a bit to be held maybe together in talking about um, the rites of passage with youth and just life, which I see you doing. And then next week we'll focus in on what do we do at, at near the end of life and how do we create rites of passage that are significant so that we have wisdom keepers and elders again. You know, in other words, how do we start right, to right. jump in here in a broken system and start fixing things? So, so it Annie, is very, it is very difficult. That is di- the, the, one of the thing, one of the, dif- the dif- difficulties. I think up until now, people like you and me, well, I don't know your background. So who am I? People like me have had a sort of haphazard our way of getting initiated. We have gone to whatever ceremony we could go to. We've given our all to them. And, and little flashes of initiation, if we have been so blessed, have come our way. But of course, a much better way is if one can devise something powerful enough and one can open to spirit strongly enough that the young, at a time when they're emotionally very open, if we can, at that point, give them a very powerful experience or help them receive a very powerful experience of spirit and of the interconnectedness of all life and where they fit into that, then they will never forget that. And that will, you know, affect their lives for the rest of their lives, regardless of whether they decide to follow a specific spiritual path or be religious or whatever. That will stay with them. And as you say, it's very difficult. It's very difficult for us to try and give something I think there are two main difficulties. One is for us to try and give something that we don't quite understand because we haven't had it ourselves. And the other is that part of initiation for the young is that they are being initiated into adulthood in a particular way. But when they've had a good initiation, they come back into society that by and large doesn't know, hasn't a clue of their experience or rubbishes it or in some way doesn't support them. So it's not only a difficult time for us, it's also a difficult time for the young, the ones that we initiate say again and again, it's so hard, I went to college. No one seems to look at the world in the same way that I do. 
or I go back to my friends and they don't really understand things anymore the way that I do. And I find that difficult and I find it lonely. So it's a bit, but then I think to myself, yes, but every step of this path in some ways has been lonely. And that we just, at this time, everyone has to show a great deal of courage, I think, to bring that thing back again, which we've lost. But the thing that makes it easier is that actually it's a remembering. You know, I'm, we all know who we are somewhere in our beings. We all know how we belong. We all know in ourselves how life is. We've just forgotten in our conscious mind. So when it's opened up to us somewhere, it's so familiar. We feel so relieved and we feel so grateful, even if we're going to forget it again in three months' time. And that's what's on our side, is that if you open the space for the young ones, they, somewhere in their beings they remember and they think, oh, I've come home. This is what it's about. This is what I've sort of been sort of wondering about and searching for, but I didn't even have the knowledge of how to search for it. But this is, this is right. I think that's a great help in a difficult time. Well, and now, Annie, I'd like to just to? share some ideas just to reinforce for people how true what you're saying is. I, because I do a lot of soul retrieval work for people here in the States mostly, and I cannot tell you how many 14, 15, 16-year-old soul parts I found sitting on the couch in the basement, stoned out of their mind, playing video games, and lost in that because of their deep soul despair that they know they need to be initiated. They know there's something more. Their soul knows exactly what you're talking about, and there is an adult anywhere in their view. There's, there's grown-ups, but no adults who know how to do what needs to be done, and they are, their soul is despairing for what is missing and they, they not that they could tell you what it is but as you've said there is a remembering and a knowing that it needs to be there and there's an equivalent yeah. with young girls and and people say oh well you know menstruation does it no it doesn't that there is a deep soul knowing that something's supposed to happen at this time in my life and it's not happening and there's nobody around that's even noticing it's a problem and there's a great despair and for 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 many here it, it actually is so strong it creates soul loss in that despairing yes, for what is yes. not there and so i just want to say it's it's deeply that knowing is real it's really really strong and it's coming out of our our souls it surely is well we are what we are, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> We're not really plastic, um, semi-robot computer people at all. We're beautiful yeah. beings rather similar to the plants and the rocks and the birds. Yeah. We just forget that. It's difficult, so isn't it? We don't really... I remember the person who I really saw that with. I worked once. Uh, we brought over an Australian First Nations woman, Lorraine Matthew-Williams. She's died now, a, a teacher, and she came to England for a while and... We took her to Cornwall, and we were in a field in Cornwall. Who knows why? It doesn't matter. And it was sort of May, so the grass was quite long, and the wind was blowing, and the grass was blowing in the wind. And I looked across, and she was kneeling in the, kneeling in the field. I can't remember why. And she was the first person who looked as at home in that field as a rabbit or a deer, the first human. And I, at that point, it was one of the times when I got it. I got what it could be like if I could really be so at home that I wasn't looking at the land and the rabbits and the foxes, 
But I was there with them, feeling totally at home. Well, I hope I've got a bit closer now. But the trouble with, to come back to the young, the trouble with the young, I don't know what it's like in America for you, but over here, a lot of them are so secularized now because they've grown up without any form of even religion at all. But they don't even know, you know, you talk about spirituality and they just look at you completely blankly. Mm -hmm. So you almost have to sort of kidnap them and sort of almost trick them into doing a little bit of ceremony so they get a feel for it before they... So they have to have the experience, a little experience, to be able to ask for it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You almost have to do it back to front. Share some of the things that you do, just that, that... That have been effective, just so people can understand. I mean, we've talked about how great the problem is, and it does tend to make people go and just put their head down on their desk, you know. (laughs) So why don't you share some of the things that you have done that and how that's affected various children to the extent that you can share those stories. And and just so people understand, it it is hugely important to do, but it isn't impossible. I mean, you're doing it. It's impossible. I mean, the the beginning stuff is really simple. Um, you take them out onto the land, and then they say things like, oh, I've got really chilled out. In two days, I'm really chilled out. It's funny being in a wood. It's quite different. And, oh, you don't need a television if you have a fire. I never knew that. And we had a boy who was very manic. In the end, he managed to camp by himself all night. And he came back the next morning and said, I have a new name. And I, I can't tell you the name, obviously, because it was his mm-hmm. name. Sure. But he was someone, we didn't tell him to look for a name. We hadn't talked about that sort of stuff at all, but just spending the night in the woods had opened up something to him, and a name had had come to him, had been sent to him, and he'd heard it. The thing mm. is, although they're secularized, they're, they're more open. You know, the younger people are, the less set they are in their ways, and the less set they are in their way of seeing life. So then we start doing, I give them a little teaching, and I talk to them about, I, get, I teach them old stories. Old stories are really, really good. Uh, I know one or two old Guatemalan stories that one takes an hour to tell and one takes two hours to tell. And if you tell them a story like that, you'd think maybe they would get bored, but no. They listen all the way through, and then they come up, and as we're doing things, they start relating them back to the story, even though it's got nothing to do with their modern mobile phone life. Somewhere again, the old stories just start getting their bodies to respond. Then we do little ceremonies, like maybe, well, little, maybe we'll make a house, and in the house we'll hang, they'll write things about difficulties in their past life, we'll hang them, and then we'll sing and play our drums and take this to the fire and burn it. Or maybe we've had a good time in the woods, so we'll make something beautiful out of sticks, the form of sticks and flowers, and dance and sing and take it to the wood and say, here's a thank you. Small things, and we don't describe them as ceremony. We just do them. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And because we just do them, then they're prepared to go along with them. Now, when I do an initiation, well, I was very, very fortunate to have been taught um, a, a changed form of an old initiation from Guatemala, and that is a very complex ceremony, and it takes the young people eight or nine months to prepare for it. And then they have to spend a year after it doing community work. And they have to prepare for it by collecting things, by strengthening themselves physically by running, by listening to old stories, 
by learning to talk in a beautiful manner, and the things that they collect are natural. So it takes them a long time to prepare, because you know how it is with ceremony. One can go to a ceremony, and it can be very nice, <laughs> you know, a beautiful form, and one may feel a little emotional, one may have an extraordinary opening, or one may not. But in a way, the more preparation one makes for the ceremony, the more powerful it is. I always say the preparation for a ceremony is about four times as long as the ceremony itself. So if you have a ceremony that's going to be a week long, you need many months of preparation to really be able to open up to as many levels of it as you can. So I sort of work from one end to the other. We're going to try and bring this ceremony over to England um, next year. So we'll see if some of the kids we've been working with in the woods some of them may want to come and do a bit more. Who can say? Because a lot of these kids that we take into the woods, by and large, are very urban. And they've had difficult lives. And they're quite wounded. So you have to start slowly with them. And they don't trust very much. You know, quite rightly. So they have yes. to learn to trust you. And have to learn to be safe in the woods. When they hear dogs barking at night, they think it's wolves. And they get very nervous. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that give you some well, idea? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's 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 it is funny sometimes that people don't really realize because I grew up in Oregon, which is very forested. It's a you know temperate rainforest, and my family camped all the time. So I've always felt fr- fairly comfortable out in nature. Although I certainly probably couldn't survive if you dropped me out of an airplane somewhere. But anyway, my I was always surprised when I met truly urban people. And, and how for me to sort of be left alone to figure out my way in a city was terrifying. But for them to be dropped in, in really pretty benign nature or to be left overnight was terrifying. And, and coming to understand that and um, being gracious in a sense for, for where people's fears are coming from and to understand how to meet those fears in a good way, in the same way the old stories and the old ways met the fears of the people of that time. Yes. It's like, yes. you know, like their fears aren't stupid. Their fears make sense given their lives, and they have to be met in a way that allows well, them Absolutely. They have to be honored, don't they? I mean, I yes. get come across this a lot because I put a lot of people out on Vision Quest. And I remember a 23-year-old young man came along. He really wanted to go. And the first thing they do is a night walk, just as you ought to be like, meaning they have to walk out in the countryside for an hour or two by themselves in the dark. Because, you know, to to bring up some of their fears. And I was very struck. He came back and he said, I really don't like that. And I said, why not? And he said, it's not natural. And I said, it's not natural. And what is natural to you? And he said, well, pavements and streetlights. And I had to honor that to him, that was how the world is. And this other, this other going out and the wind blowing in the trees and the ground being rough under your feet and barely being able to see was something really new that it was going to take him time to, to even get used to. And I remember a very streetwise woman who came, you know, she was brave, would do anything in the city, but she said, you know what, I'm absolutely terrified of spending a night out and I've got, to, I've got to spend four with you so she said I've got to stay up the first night because otherwise I should be terrified the entire time and she came back and of course she had an extraordinary and wonderful story to tell but I really 
you know, publicly had to honor her bravery because that was yeah. a hugely brave thing to do, to be out when all her fears came at her from every angle because she was out on the land and not in a street. Of course, like you, I'm much more scared in the street, which are full of men with knives or whatever, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably quite wrong and city people just laugh at me, but it's, it's true. We have to go very gently and with a great deal of honor for where they are and never laugh at them, but always try to understand. And to do an initiation, of course, is really a brave thing. But in a way, I think that it's what, especially with young people, there is that desire in them, sort of between 14 and 20, there's a desire to be stretched, there's a desire to feel the edge of something. You know, they play the game of chicken, or they run along a bridge which is dangerous, or they do dangerous sex or they do dangerous drugs or whatever it is, something, because they have to feel that edge and really push life to see how far they can go. So an initiation needs that edge of danger also really to satisfy them so that they can feel the edge of what life is. And somewhere that helps them really feel alive. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, and Maladoma Somme actually has written about this as well around initiation of youth and how that relates to gang behavior and activities. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's saying the same thing uh, or similar thing, but just that sense that if we, I guess where I would go with that is if we can shape meaningful ceremony and meaningful ritual for initiation, some of this behavior would become unnecessary. For, for from Absolutely. the kids because they need something, and 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 with the uh, lack of something meaningful and and productive, you know, in in the in the sacred initiatory sense, they just repeat these these behaviors that are terrifying and and stretch them again and again and again because the the actual process of the ceremony doesn't complete itself. And so they're, they're repeating the stretching and scaring part without the part where they get acknowledged and get to tell their story and get to have prevailed or learned or, you know, whatever it is when you come to the end. And so they're always at the beginning and the middle and they don't ever get the end. And thus it doesn't complete. It's like an incomplete process that just keeps repeating. A, B, A, B, A, B, you never see. Yes. And also they never get... They never get in, do they? They never get into the culture in a way that satisfies them. I mean, mm -hmm. with an initiation, in a way, you take them out. You take them away from what they're used to. Yes. And then, as far as you can, you strip them down so that they lose their familiar sense of self. And, they, and then they open up to something very deep. And then as they come back, you rebuild them in a slightly different way, but as you rebuild them, hopefully you empower them, but as a different being, because after all, they went in as children, and somehow they want to come out with a flavor of the best and deepest of being an adult, and a flavor mm -hmm. of what that means and what the world is that they're standing in. So it's a complex and difficult thing, and that involves the spiritual as well. So if you take them in really, really deep into the spiritual, and then you bring them out, and you bring them out as a part of this living earth, and then they're taken back to the community, and the community are really important to welcome them, to honor them in their new form, to bless them, to gift them, to feast them. 
And then they need to be looked after as they slowly return to their normal way of being and get back into their jeans and their T-shirts and go out and see their friends. But Mm -hmm. so it's a complex thing, isn't it? Because partly they're doing that, but partly also they're going... And so they're partly... So you're trying to give them an experience of the sacredness and interconnectedness of all life. Partly you're getting them to... Trying to help them move from the dependency of childhood to an active participation in creating and maintaining the society that they live in. So when they come out, they're empowered. And with that empoweredness, you then say, now what are you going to do? Because now you're no longer... If you're no longer the one on the breast sucking the milk, you're one of the ones who give the milk now. Everything has changed. And then you start them off by saying, so what... Who could you feed? What community service could you do for a while? So you practice that giving. Who can you see in the community who really, really has nothing much? Maybe there's someone there that you could help. How could you help them? Use your initiation initiative to, to find out a way. And so one of the ways that I think one does that is to, is to the whole initiation is built on a story. So you take them into a story. So it's like, you know, if you watch a film, you go into the story and you lose yourself in that story and then you come out again at the end of the film. Well, of course, that's a strange thing, but it's, there's somewhere there's a similarity. So when you make an initiation, there is a story and you're following that story. You're not going in a linear way, but you keep referring to a story that is told to them on different levels that all interconnect and interweave so that they get lost in that story about how life is. And then hopefully they will take a lot of it in through their pores, through their cells, through their body. So you don't explain what you're doing. So their rational mind can't grab hold of it and drag it back into the norm. But their being has experienced it as time goes on afterwards. Sense starts to come to them and they start understanding on many different levels all that they have experienced in those few intense days. So well, and the, 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 the story holds the pattern so that they can reflect, you know, they don't lose it. It's like the story holds the bits and pieces that haven't quite integrated or surfaced yet for them. And they come back to the story and they keep finding more. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's exactly it. And then they start connecting with other old stories. Of course, there aren't so many, you know. A lot of our stories have been sort of chopped up a bit, haven't they, and Christianized and sanitized. Yeah, yeah. all the so good bits the taken Russians out. have pretty good stories, so it's difficult finding the good long stories. But once you find a few good long stories, then you start recognizing the bits and pieces in our shorter bits of stories. It's a wonderful, yeah. I don't know, it's a wonderful journey for us as well as for them. I think part of when we talk about initiation into, initiation into elderhood, my my feeling is and my experience is that part of that happens in your work with other people as you hold ceremony for other people. So you yourself are getting initiated. And again, as I said before, it's a bit of a piecemeal way and it's a bit of a difficult way. And, it, and, and you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to have someone appear out of somewhere and give us initiations? But I think then... so. By the time that you reach elderhood, you have, you have been a part of and held so many ceremonies for others that you're getting to the place where you can hold your own. I was given 
initiation into grandmotherhood, which is, you know, elderhood, by a woman called Jamie Sams. Do you remember the yes. animal cards? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's given out to anyone, but she said the point about this is, I'll give you the form, but you have to do this with a few other older women. You have to have gone through your menopause. And the strength of the ceremony of the initiation depends on the strength that you have. But now when you become an elder, you have to be strong enough to hold ceremony for yourself. Mm-hmm. And how far you're initiated depends on, you know, what you've gathered through your life. Yes. I like yes. that. I like that. Yeah. So that well, was a good a, way. There's a piece you were talking about before that I, I think is important and, and we didn't really tease it out for people, which is you've mentioned it many times, which is your ability to to hold the essence of the old story or the old pattern, the old path that allows these activities to become meaningful. Because you could mix them up in a way that, and they wouldn't do anything, right? The activities in and of themselves, it's partly about the story, that the way that they come together. So anyway, my point is you... You are able, as we talked about the fears, to respect what is different about today. And yet humans are still in many ways the same and still need the same sacred functions to happen. But, and so the old forms guide us and help us. And some parts may adjust or adapt to be able to work today, to be effective today. It is, in other words, it really isn't enough to just have that magical person appear out of some other time and say, here, this is how initiation works, because how it did work may not be precisely the form. It's the function, but not the form that might work today. And this is what I have noticed as I listen to you in the UK and I've listened to you speak, and even today, is you, you have an innate understanding for what is the essence that must be kept intact or it won't work and what is the what are the parts that are adaptable to adapt to the time and the people and how do I hold all of that in a good way and this is what's really beautiful I think about your work is um, I think and I personally believe that a piece of your efficacy comes from that ability to understand the difference between the form and the function and how they work together and where you get to be creative and where you must hold the old ways together. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's what I hear when I listen to you. Okay, well let me see what comes. <laughs> um partly I think it is what do I say? And people think they can make a ceremony. They can just make a ceremony, you know. But my belief is that it's very important to find, I suppose for me, you know, you can be a magician or you can be a spiritual person or you can be both. And it seems to me it's very important to be a spiritual person, to love spirit and to be guided by spirit. And my, I think it's, very, it's worth honoring the old teachings. Uh, my what was taught to me and uh, my experience has been that if you it's worth following working really hard with one particular lineage now for me it was native american for a long time it was um the medicine wheel teachings from the cheyenne and the crow as i was taught them and i expect many cheyenne and crow would laugh and say i don't have a good understanding 
And that's all right, because of course I don't, because I'm a Westerner. Um, and how can I begin? But somewhere, if you really work and practice and practice and work, in time, you will start resonating. It's like with, shall we say, if it was music, with a particular chord or the particular scale of that lineage. And then the teachings of that lineage will open up to you, whether or not you've been told them by somebody, you know, in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. in the medicine world teachings, uh, there's something called the collective consciousness and everything is there for us. Everything that has been at all humans have thought and everything that will be is all there for us. But the difficulty is finding it and making sense of it. So the first thing I think is really sort of immersing yourself in one particular path. And it doesn't matter which path, so long as you love it, so long as it sings to your heart. So if you find you think, I really, really want to do such and such, but actually I find it rather boring, forget it. Just go along until you find a path that sings to your heart and then sort of dive deep into it. Because it's always a question of being deep. And the other thing is to do ceremony, to do ceremony, to do ceremony, to do ceremony. You know, I've done four, six rainbow dream dances and I've been on Vision Quest and I've been in many sweat lodges and I've done many beautiful ceremonies. I've been very blessed that I found people who open them for me. And also, every morning when I get up, I thank the sun for another day, that the day is actually come and I am so blessed that I have another day to live. And every evening, pretty much, not always, but mostly, depending where I am, I take a little bit of my food, a little bit of the best of it, and I take it out and I say to Spirit, I don't forget you. Please don't forget me. So what I'm saying about that is, in great ways, but also in very small ways, you immerse yourself in ceremony. That's the only way, because the only way really, I think, to know what you can and cannot do is to be in there. So, you know, you've seen me at those shamanic conferences where I do ceremony, and you'd laugh. You should see what a state I was in before I did it. Because people say, well, haven't you planned the thing? And I say, well, mm, not exactly. Because I know that I may get a bit of the form, but actually it will change and that I have to really focus on it and get nervous and get in a state about it. And then it'll start coming to, I have to get in a state about it because I don't really know what I'm doing. But I have to trust that the actual final form isn't going to come through till maybe half an hour before I do it or 10 minutes before I do it. Because what shall I say? At that time, I can, I'm tuning in, not consciously in a way, but I'm tuning in in my being and I'm tuning in in the sleep when I don't even remember to the people who are collecting and to the ancestors who are there and to that particular time. And so that's how a good ceremony forms because all of that swirls around in you and affects what decisions you finally make about, oh, Perhaps I should get some colored threads. Oh, my goodness, can I borrow them from someone and will there be enough? Or oh, I remember one time I had everyone down in the library the night before we were going to do some. We did. Were you there when we did the t- dance the tree? At no. The end? Maybe you weren't. We danced it. I decided we had to dance the tree, so we had to go out, Leo and I, climb over a fence in the rain, cut this hazel. And the night before, I had a load of people coming. It just sort of suddenly came to me in the library, and they were bringing T-shirts and scarves and things because we needed a lot of bits of cloth. I suddenly realized, and I didn't have any, but of course they came. So that's what I'd say to you. It's, you have to dive into it, and then you just have to trust and allow it to work you. And you have enough experience that you have some forms, but you've got to, you've got to be brave enough to really 
allow ceremony to constantly be saying, this is where we are now. Yes, you have a form, but let's jump actually that way right now. Mm-hmm. And yes, you need some form, but actually right now, you, I know you don't understand, but this is what we're going to do. So I well, and, and the tone that you talked about, the, the, what you surrendered to and, and, and gave all that dedication and depth and training to is there guiding it. In, in yeah. like behind the scenes and then the the details of the form emerge and as long as you're resonating with that true tone whatever it is will do the trick at that time exactly and it, it, a little bit it'll come through you yeah you know and also you, it comes anyway one has to trust i never forget one of the first things i did i was um Someone rang me up when I first came to Bath and said, come down to Stanton Drew, which is a stone circle somewhere between here and Glastonbury, and I'm going to bring some people from Glastonbury. I want you to do a ceremony for them. And I thought, oh, Jesus Christ. So I ran up this friend from Cornwall. He said, yes, yes, I'll come up and help you. I mean, you know, this was a long time ago, and I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing, if I'm perfectly honest. And he came up, but he arrived late, and they arrived early. So we had about three seconds to agree what to do. So there we were in the middle of this circle. And... Basically, all I was doing was worrying about the form and what, what we thought we were doing. I was totally nervous and stage frightened, and I didn't deepen myself at all. But it's that other thing, you know, when you do things when you begin, spirit is very generous. As you carry on, you've got to work a bit harder. It doesn't go on being generous. But <laughs> at the end, people came up and said this thing had happened to them for them, and that thing had happened to them. And I thought, well, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. What gratitude. We did nothing. We were two idiots standing in the middle of a ring of stones there, hoping that something would happen anyway. And so it did. And maybe it was because that was a holy place. You know, I love to work. That's another thing. I love to work um, down in my native Cornwall because there are old, small circles that not many tourists go to. So they've, they have been working with humans for thousands of years. Now, I always think, it's easier to talk to the stones that have been talking to humans and humans have been talking to for thousands of years. And humans for a long time have sung to them and gifted them and said, please, please be friendly to us. And somewhere I think they are, you know. It's a bit easier than just going out and finding a rock on a hillside who may or may not be interested. <laughs> but I find, you know, the ancient sites are quite interested. Somewhere they've tuned into us as well as we, well, far better, of course. We've tuned into them. Anyway. So, Annie, our, our hour has flown by, and there are about four different directions I would love to go with you right now, but I'm sensing that perhaps um, asking you just to share some more about what you're doing with your Earth Stewards work, because this would be, I think, a place where people that can join you. Okay. So would you t- suppose- like to talk a little bit about that? That's my, it's a difficult one because it's just oh, sorry, but um, it's it's and it's a difficult one. But it, I'm trying to bring together my different passions. You you by now must have guessed that I am passionate about spirits and the holy and the sacred. You know, I've always been so passionate about that. But I'm also passionate. You know, I'm I'm quite political in my strange, confused way. And I'm very passionate about us and what we're doing right now. And I and I sometimes, you know, I read the paper or I watch television or I hear someone tell a story and I hear about, oh, yes, I remember. There was, um, we have a big chain store called Iceland that sells a lot of frozen food in England. And, you know, um, this GM food was great to do about this 
genetically modified food. And I think it was seven people were in a little group in the north of England. And they wrote letters to the, the head. How much time we've got? I'll try and be quick. The head of this firm, the, the managing director or whatever, and they said how concerned they were and would he, what did he know about it and would he consider not using foods that were genetically modified. And the managing director had never thought about this. No one had brought it to his attention. He read, it, read up about it and decided that he, he became the first big company in Britain who said, we're not going to use any genetically modified foods in our firm. That came about through the faith and a little bit of action from seven people. So that, that sort of shows me that, you know, people can do a huge amount. You know, people sit trying to say, I can't do anything. They can do a huge amount. So Earth Stewards is a mixture of the spiritual and the political. And it's trying to empower people to get through their fear. And uh, I suppose it brings all my fields together because, you know, I'm trained in humanistic psychology as well. So I can work with, with people's emotions. And sometimes people get stuck because they can't bear to look at something because it's too frightening or it's too overwhelming. So one of the things I try and do in Earth Stewards is get people through their fear, help them get through their fear. And the second thing always is to connect them to the land, because if you can really connect to the land through your being, then you have an emotional desire to make things, to save trees or to stop eating food that, for which animals have been horrendously painfully brought up, etc., etc., or perhaps to be not quite so lazy and walk where you might drive or pay to take a train where you might fly or whatever it is. So I suppose with the Earth Stewards, I'm trying to bring the different strands together to, again, take people out onto the land, always take people out onto the land, give them some spiritual experience and help them regain their sense of hope and regain their inspiration and pray to spirit to inspire each person who comes on the training so that they can come up with an idea that just is perfect for them that will make a difference. Does that give you some idea? Yes, thank you, Annie. And we we are running out of time. That was beautiful, perfectly timed. <laughs> and it's it part of part of my ulterior motive in inviting you as the guest today was to share someone who is truly a contemporary ceremonialist ceremonialist who is concerned that the ceremony be effective. There is a little too much new agey, well, we never know the result of the ceremony, we just have to trust. Well, yes, and. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. And, you know, this actually is meant to be an effective form. And if we take it, those few more steps, as I see you doing, it can create enormous change. Like you said, a few people can actually do quite a bit with the guidance of spirit. You know, it's not just activism. It's spirit-guided and ceremonially um, inspired. And, you know, I mean, you get what I'm saying. I get what you're saying. You do. You put it. I have to say, you put it so well. I love it. Okay. Well, Annie, we have to stop. But I want to thank you so much for joining us, and I just am so pleased with the gift that you have shared with everyone today. So, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. After all. Yeah. Okay then. And 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 so. We can, uh, you can hang on if you want. I just want to remind people that you can connect with Annie's work and get to her through her heartwell.eu.com website. Um, H-A-R-T-W-E-L-L dot E-U, as in European 
Um and you can connect with her just through the contact on that site, but it's just info at. And um, we give thanks to the Society of Shamanic Practitioners, and we give thanks to the spirits for gathering around us here today, the ancestors for holding us well, this deep and beautiful spirits of the earth, the spirit of the sky above, and the heart energy that unites us all. Thank you, Annie, and thank you, everyone, for joining us this week.